Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hi, it's Friday, June 19th, Juneteenth. Diversity was in the news this week. Connie, what's going on? There were a number of initiatives that were announced. Unsurprisingly, it's great that the momentum has continued around this very, very important issue. Alphabet, which had last week announced a $100 million fund tied to its YouTube subsidiary to amplify black creators and artists, separately revealed a new $175 million commitment that includes financing and grants for small businesses and funding for black-led capital firms, startups, and organizations. Uh, Interestingly, one firm that was specifically highlighted by Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai is Plexo Capital, whose guest Lo Tony we talked with last week. So congratulations to Lo. He's apparently getting a little bigger commitment from Alphabet. A day later, Facebook announced that it too is committing more money to support Black-owned businesses and organizations. In Facebook's case, it's committing $200 million as part of a broader $1.1 billion investment in Black and diverse suppliers and communities in the U.S., Interesting initiatives. Of course, given the size and scale and capital that these companies control, it's easy to question, are they going far enough, fast enough? By comparison, Netflix CEO Reed Hastings announced this week that he and his wife alone will donate $120 million to support scholarships at historically black colleges and universities, which is terrific. Either way, things are moving in the right direction, which is good news. Another big story today was Apple's decision to close 11 stores in four states. Right. Some Apple customers are going to be a little bit upset, but Apple has decided to temporarily close stores in Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, and South Carolina after cases of COVID-19 spiked in areas across those states. The company is being very careful Apple, of course, was, I think, one of the first companies to shut down its U.S. retail stores in mid-March. It had earlier shut down its 42 stores in China and had reopened all of them by mid-March with Tim Cook saying that he felt the Chinese government had done an excellent job of containing the virus. Apparently here, the policy will be open and close as need be. We can expect a tweet from President Trump any second now about Tim Apple's decision to close his stores. <laughs> We're monitoring the airwaves as we speak. Right. Tim Apple, of course, being what Trump called Tim Cook, just so people don't think that <laughs> Alex is confused about the CEO of Apple. But I have to say, Alex, I don't know if you happen to see this before we sat down, but we have some bad news coming to us right here in Marin County in Northern California. Marin, I just read, could be grappling with a trifecta of flashing complications. Not just this stay-at-home order, which is horrible, but of course, wildfire season is coming up and PG&E shutdowns. I guess PG&E is again planning to preemptively shut off power this year to prevent its equipment from sparking more wildfires. So, I mean, we could be in a situation where we're in the dark without the ability to work or leave or go anywhere. And we're stuck with our kids. (laughs) Oh my God. What are they trying to do to us? On a much sadder note... A 20-year-old this week killed himself because he misunderstood an option trade on Robinhood and thought he had lost $700,000. Yes, this is just such a sad, sad story. And also, not surprising, this 20-year-old Alex Kearns piled on what he himself decided was 
too much risk. He said in a note to his family as he was, I guess, preparing to kill himself, how is a 20-year-old with no income able to get assigned almost a million dollars worth of leverage? The note reads, there was no intention to be assigned this much and take this much risk. I only thought that I was risking the money that I actually owed. The problem with Robinhood is also what's amazing about Robinhood, which is that it is attracting a whole new generation of investors, half of whom apparently in the first quarter had never invested before. The platform had 1 million users as of 2016. Now it has 10 million and they love this company. They may love it, but trading options is very confusing, even for people who know what they're doing. And investing is not a game, even though it's great that Robin is encouraging people to actually own stock. And it's great because so many people don't own stock. It's really something that has to be done very carefully. Absolutely. And apparently, you know, you see the market going up and down and there's just been, you know, trading's never been so feverish as during the coronavirus, which is very strange. But you just said investing's not a game. And in fact, you know, Robinhood makes it seem very much like a game. Bloomberg noted that the app shows confetti shooting when a user makes a trade and features lists of the most popular stocks on the platform. They have a news podcast called Snacks Daily, and apparently it has used rap lyrics to issue legal disclaimers. This all sounds very fun, but unfortunately, there were very dire consequences in this case. Our hearts go out to Alex's family. Coming up next... Our guest this week is Tim O'Reilly, who is one of Silicon Valley's leading intellectuals and the founder of O'Reilly Media. O'Reilly is also the co-founder of O'Reilly Alpha Tech Ventures, which is better known as OATV, and NDVC, which is an early stage incubator that's targeting companies and founders outside of Silicon Valley and has a diverse portfolio to show for it. But first, a word from our sponsor. Want to hitch a ride on Falcon 9's next trip to the International Space Station? That will set you back $55 million. Luckily, you don't need that much cash to access investments in private companies pushing the frontier of tech innovation. Enter EquityZen. Through its pooled funds, EquityZen lets you invest in pre-IPO companies like SpaceX and Rivian. Sign up to explore EquityZen's private market today. So, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. As listeners may know, Tim has a long history of convening conversations that reshape the computer industry. He was one of the first people to use the term open source software. He came up with how Web 2.0 came to be defined in the last decade. And Tim's got some really interesting thoughts now on this particular moment in time being maybe even more impactful than we're imagining. Tim, thank you again for joining us today. You're very welcome. So, Tim, we're talking on Juneteenth, which is a big deal. A lot of companies around the world have actually given their employees the day off to celebrate the day. How far or not do you think we've come in the venture capital industry specifically? You've been a member of this world for decades. Do you feel like we've reached a tipping point? Maybe, maybe not. Here's the thing that I would say about VC and about really everything in tech, uh, and that is this concept of structural racism. People think that all that matters is, well, my values are good. You know, my heart's in the right place. I donate to charities, whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. and we don't actually 
fix the systems that cause the problems. And so if you look at VC, you've got these approaches, you know, like, oh, yes, we will hire more black and female partners. We will try to invest in more of those kinds of companies. But the networks from which they're drawing entrepreneurs are not that different. But more importantly, the goals of the VC model are not that different. This is really true across our society, across dealing with AI. And there's some real lessons from tech in general, you know, like the platforms set a goal when they're curating or algorithm, you know, their algorithms are curating their platform. Our economy sets a goal, VC sets a goal, uh, and it has a certain kind of financial shape, Mm -hmm. which is inherently exclusionary. To give you an example of where we've gone with O'Reilly AlphaTech Ventures, and this I really give credit to my partner, Bryce Roberts, the typical VC model is looking for this high growth company with exit potential because it's looking for this uh, you know, big financial return from an IPO or acquisition. And uh, that selects for a certain type of founder. So Bryce is looking for companies that are trying to build sustainable businesses with cash flow and profits. They're the kind of small businesses that have vanished from America, partly because of the VC myth, which is really about creating financial instruments for the wealthy. Mm-hmm. You, know, you talk to a typical Silicon Valley entrepreneur these days, you ask how their, country, their, their company is doing, and they tell you about their financing. What Bryce did was he came up with a version of a safe that allows the founders to buy out the VC at a predetermined amount if they ever become sufficiently profitable but gives them the optionality because periodically some of them do end up becoming a rocket ship and then it is convertible. So you really have the optionality, but the the founder is not there on the the treadmill of you have to get out. Anyway, this is a long answer to this Juneteenth story, but it was not like a deliberate purpose of this. But when you start saying, okay, we're going to look for sustainable businesses, you look outside of Silicon Valley. Bryce looked all over the country. And he ended up with companies with uh, lots of, it's, I think it's more than 50% women founders. I think it's 30% people of color. They're in crazy ass places. And it's an incredible investment strategy. But that's not to say that people who are African-American or women can't also lead companies that are part of the high growth VC model that's more typical of Silicon Valley. No, of, co- of course not. Of course they could le- they could lead. But it's kind of interesting that the talent pool is just much greater. You know, like there's a certain kind of bro culture in Silicon Valley. And if you don't want to be part of it, if you if you don't fit in, sure, you could do it. But there are a lot of impediments. That's what we mean by structural racism. No, you're absolutely right. And I mean, I've, I've talked to a lot of VCs about this diversity issue in recent weeks, obviously. And one prominent Black VC, Charles Hudson of Precursor Ventures, has said the problem really is that a lot of these people just don't have a lot of Black friends. They don't have a lot of contacts in their professional networks. So I'm wondering how has Bryce reached out and found some of these founders and how have they found him and NDVC? I think a lot of people are trying to figure out how to foster more connections. Well, again, part of it is really a... um a side effect of looking for a different kind of business. Bryce basically does road trips. He, he's kind of built kind of like this national incubator. Same kind of thing that Steve Case has done with the rise of the rest. He's actually now got a, a big scout network, but you know, it's breaking the geographic isolationism of Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. It's breaking the business model isolationism of Silicon Valley. You know, that says, okay, only things that, that, that fit this particular profile are worth investing in. 
And I think it, it makes a big difference what you choose. Bryce didn't go out there and say, I want to go find people of color to invest in. What he said was, I want to have a different kind of investment in different places in the United States. And when he did that, he naturally found entrepreneurs who reflect the diversity of America. And that's kind of, I think, what we have to really think about. It's not like, how do we get more black and brown founders into this broken Silicon Valley model? It's like, how do we actually go figure out what the opportunities are in, in helping them uh, to grow businesses in their communities? Are LPs interested in this kind of model? Does it have the kind of growth potential that they need to service their endowments? It's funny because it was a bit of a, a struggle when we did Fund 4, which was focused on NDVC. It was about a third the size of Fund 3. Fund 5, the fundraising is just like gangbusters. Everybody wants in. First of all, because the model has proven itself. There are two companies that are kind of in similar businesses. One was in, in our Fund 3, a traditional Silicon Valley style investment. And the other was an NDVC investment in Idaho, of all places. The one that's sort of more traditional seed, we've ended up putting in 2.5 million so far. I think we have a 25% stake. Uh, the one in Idaho, we put in 500,000. We have a 25% stake. The one uh, in Idaho is now twice the size of the Silicon Valley one and growing much faster. That's incredible. Yeah, it was just like going out and you find somebody who has a, an idea, has a passion, actually has a business because that's the thing that I think is so wrong in the Silicon Valley model. It's like, entrepreneur is somebody who goes out and raises money to start a business. And I think the old model of entrepreneur was somebody goes out and finds customers to start a business. That's how I did it at O'Reilly. I had $500. I never raised money. I basically found customers for what, for what we wanted to do and grew the business organically. And so what Bryce actually looks for are companies that already have revenue. They're looking to grow it's sort of building a network of people who are thinking about building a business for the long term. You know, you know, O'Reilly's a couple hundred million dollars in revenue, but we took 40 years to get there, you know, and no VC invests on a 40 year horizon. Right. Well, to your point, I mean, there's so many problems with the model. So you've got people now who are starting companies just to raise venture capital. You've got venture capitalists investing money just because they want to continue raising bigger and bigger funds. Yeah. They're obviously benefiting from the management fees and then they have to pour that money into startups. You know, you got to use it or lose it. So I wonder how scalable is your model? You're talking about raising, you said sort of a considerably larger amount of money, or at least you said that there's much more interest in the model. I think the NDVC model is absolutely right. I mean, if you look at our economy, it's full of companies that were not designed as financial exits. There are great companies. It takes a bit more patience, but our economy needs it. You know, yes, there's some appeal in the model because of the diversity. So we have, you know, uh, you know, as LPs, we have a bunch of foundations who are kind of like wanting to, you know, invest in this sort of socially responsible investing. But from what we're seeing, the returns are actually going to be better. You know, uh, than uh, traditional Silicon Valley VC, which is really picked over. I've been really disillusioned with uh, Silicon Valley investing for a long time. If you think about Wall Street going up to 2008, the idea was as long as somebody wants to buy this product, we're good. Nobody's thinking about, is it a good product? I feel like so many things that VCs have created are really financial instruments, just like CDOs 
you know, collateralized debt obligations were financial instruments. They're not really thinking about is this actually a company that could survive on revenue from its customers? It's it, you know, it's designed entirely for an exit, which is is kind of like somebody not asking, well, are these mortgages actually any good? You know, as long as we can get some sucker to take them, and I, and I, I think that the you know so many acquisitions fail, for example, but the, the VCs are happy because guess what? They got their exit. And it's kind of interesting if you look at some really substantial exits, they were started effectively on the NDVC model. Look at, at GitHub. It was a big exit. It eventually took in money, but they were a sustainable, profitable, fast-growing business before they took VC. But now I guess because funds are raised so quickly, VCs have to show much more traction and that's where things like blitz scaling come in. Right, right. And, and just the way you're describing it, can't you hear what's wrong with that? It's for the benefit of the VCs. The VCs have to show, not the entrepreneurs have to show. You know, the, the needs of the entrepreneurs to actually grow their business are not necessarily uh, the first priority. But also haven't the, uh, the LPs uh, become addicted to that crack and they want to see the quick financial traction? Yeah, but you know that VC returns have actually lagged public markets for, for decades now. You know, I mean, it, it's a little bit like the lottery. You know, the only sure winners are the VCs because even a VC that doesn't return their fund gets their management fees every year. And, and you know, a, a, a huge amount of the VC capital doesn't return. So I think that, that it's a seriously broken system in need of reform and everybody just sees the really big wins. And I, I, I tell you, I know when they happen, it's really wonderful. And there's a place for it, but I think it's gotten an outsized place and it's displaced other kinds of investment. And that's part of why, you know, as I say, back to the back to Juneteenth, it is part of the structural racism where we're building businesses that are optimized for their financial return rather than their return to society. I completely agree with you. And I actually think that LPs at some point are going to have to redirect their resources, including because they're so over allocated at this point to venture capital. And as you said, the returns aren't there, the exits really aren't there. And so these paper gains are not going to help them in their own jobs over time. But Tim, I wanted to move on. You had written recently some really interesting thoughts about COVID-19 and how it's you know, I think we sort of feel like we're returning back to some semblance of normal here, if slowly. Now, you wrote this about a month ago. You said, and I thought it was really interesting, you said, sometimes temporary but catastrophic events usher in permanent economic changes. Sometimes the changes appear to be reversed, but it just takes time for them to stick. World War II brought women into the workforce, and then victory ushered them back out. But the wine of opportunity once tasted was not left undrunk forever. Do you think we're underestimating the impact of this moment? Absolutely. Coming back to that piece, it's called Welcome to the 21st Century, if, if anybody wants to Google it and read it. Basically, it kind of said, look, the, the 20th century didn't begin in, in the year 1900. It really began in 1914, you know, with this cascade of changes leading to two great world wars with a, with a, a you know, worldwide depression in between, 30 years of disorder. And then we finally got our, our act together and built a prosperous society for the next uh, 70 years. I think in a similar way, we're entering a century of immense uncertainty and disruption. I don't think that there is a normal to go back to. And I, I see, say that for a number of reasons. COVID, 
yeah, maybe we'll get back to some semblance of normal. But it has exposed so many weaknesses in our society. You know, we've been investing in the wrong things. You know, you look at how incapable the U.S. was of a, a decent pandemic response, you know, compared to the rest of the world, because we've been investing really for financial returns, which are paper returns for wealthy people. Mm-hmm. You know, we basically built an economy that says increased corporate profits, people are a cost to be eliminated. We explicitly built a machine that's hostile to humanity. Our optimization function for all our companies is make more profit. People are a cost to be eliminated. And, and then we look at what's happening in our economy. And again, back to Juneteenth, you know, when you see people on the streets realizing how there's this vast group of people who've been systematically oppressed for the benefit of some other group. And it's actually baked into our economy. And when you, you know, you actually read, what do they mean by defund the police? I loved uh, AOC's response. She said, well, it'd be kind of like a suburb. People in wealthy suburbs invest way more in education, taking care of their kids. When something goes wrong, uh, they, they work on, on how to keep them out of jail, uh, giving them all kinds of alternatives. And, and yet with black and brown communities, it's, it's sort of treated as this war on crime. And uh, you know, I think I say somewhere in the beginning of the article, you know, we're entering the, cent- the century of problems like COVID that have been warned about, but ignored. Do you see an explicit role for VC in partnering with government to execute social policy change? I wouldn't say it as social policy change. I do think that there is a role for government in setting big goals, you know, and you look at, uh, you know, things like what came out of the Great Depression, rural electrification, universal funding of, of housing. We've kind of discredited government. I think the government is uh, the infra- is part of the infrastructure of our society. And so there is a partnership. And you see it already in some areas. You know, it's like everybody likes to brag on the government because of Solyndra, which was a bad investment. But they love Tesla, but they just forget that the government played just as big a role in Tesla as it did in Solyndra. You know, so, you know, here's, here's uh, Elon, the first American climate billionaire, And uh, I think there's going to be a lot more of them. And there'll be a lot more of them if government goes, oh, wait, responding to climate change isn't a cost. It's an opportunity. Oh, wait, you know, Google, you know, uh, the original work that Larry and Sergey did funded by a National Science Foundation grant. If the NSF were a VC, they would be one of the most successful VCs ever. Tim, when we talked last a few years ago, you had just written a book called WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. And you talked in that book about the platforms. A few years ago, you were already concerned that they were becoming too powerful as everyone else was as well. You were sort of pointing to AI, the use of algorithms, Google managing for relevance, Facebook managing for engagement. Do you think at this point that they are facing real regulation? I mean, that, there's obviously an appetite for it like I haven't seen in the past. I hate to say one way or the other. First off, I don't think it's a very useful activity to predict the future. Rather than predicting what governments will do, I've been saying to the platform since I wrote that book and before, look, the robust strategy for you people is to get ahead of this and to figure out what people are upset about and proactively respond to it. I kind of feel like they've got the wrong mental model for how to think about their role. And I have to say, Jack at Twitter is, is sort of stepping up in the most interesting way. You know, um, 
Mark pretends that we don't make choices. We're just trying to re- reflect our users and we, we, you know, we shouldn't be, you know, we should be neutral and blah, blah, blah. And the answer is no, you can't be neutral. You actually are making choices all the time. And the way I put it to him is, look, Mark, you're kind of making all this thing like Facebook is a democracy. It's not. You're a king and you have to be a good king. <laughs> and uh, Jack is sitting there trying to be a good king right now. You know, he's kind of go, OK, I have to make decisions and I have to make good decisions uh, for the for the benefit of the people who use my platform. And I'm, I'm not going to have this cop out that says, well, everybody gets to have a say. I think that that way is is sort of uh, a real problem for Facebook because they're they're going to end up pleasing no one. And, and I, I look at this, you know, it, it's sort of rooted in this idea that the platforms are neutral. And I go, no, their curation is absolutely an, a set of editorial choices. You know, I mean, the New York Times likes to say, oh, you know, we're, you know, all the news that's fit to print. Facebook is like, we're, we're all the news that's fit to share. They could easily be saying, yes, we are the arbiter of that. But don't you think that platforms like Facebook and Twitter have a higher responsibility than networks like Fox because of the ability of governments to manipulate thought and influence elections? Are you any more hopeful about what's going to happen in November? Absolutely. I mean, I think they have a a serious responsibility. For me, I would love to see Mark say, yeah, we're not going to take any political advertising. We think that this is too dangerous a tool because of the misinformation that's used, we're not going to play in that market. Nobody should do that. I mean, you know, I would love to see the industry do something like that. But I, again, I look at the impact of media on elections. No one knows for sure, but I would bet that the impact was relatively small in the last election compared to the impact of traditional media. Yeah, I, when I say traditional media, I mean television. I think about the the, the, the book that Yokai uh, Bankler and crew uh, from Harvard did called Network Propaganda. And what th- that book essentially says is, okay, there's all kinds of fake news that gets that circulates uh, from that gets it, all the all the fake stuff starts out of the edges of the network and it propagates and the fake news starts on, uh, from the left tends to be tamped down by the, the left-leaning mainstream media. The fake news that starts on the right, Pizzagate and whatever, you know, this is going back to the 2016, propagates and is amplified by the mainstream media on the right. That's just looking at Twitter data, you know? And so you actually have a broken media ecosystem that I think is rooted in mainstream media, not in the on the platforms. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, the thing that is rooted in the platforms and in general and the internet is the pursuit of clicks, which is why, you know, for example, for so long, you know, uh, you've had even, um, you've had outlets like the, the, the New York times, uh, that are basically pandering for clicks. And so they're, they're repeating misinformation. They're amplifying it, uh, in their own way. Uh, because, hey, it drives traffic. So there's sort of a fundamental set of incentives in the system that I think are broken. And I don't think any of the regulation is really addressing that because those same fundamental misaligned incentives are basically at the heart of our economy. We have built an economy that's not based uh, anymore on satisfying you know, real needs, uh, we have an economy that's based on 
on generating stock price. And, and that is basically for the benefit of wealthy investors and not for the benefit uh, of ordinary people. You know, you think back on what was different uh, between, say, newspapers in 1960 than newspapers today. One is many of them owned by private equity firms who basically, uh, you know, have an extractive model and they're trying to basically they load them up with debt so then they can't actually invest anymore in reporting uh they're just trying to you know get a short-term return out of them you know when you know chicago tribune went out of business it wasn't because it was not working it could have worked just fine same thing you know this is not in media but toys r us toys r us was a perfectly good business except it was loaded up with debt by private equity looted and uh, and then uh uh you know sold for scrap so we, we have a financial system, I think, that's that's out of control and that is screwing people in the ordinary economy. There's just so many things that are wrong. I can't even begin. Tim Wu wrote a book called The Curse of Bigness, which is uh, based on this quote from Justice Lewis Brandeis. We basically optimize for big, efficient, human-crushing companies that can make outsized profits. I think that that's coming home to roost. And I really think that part of what we, you know, coming back to welcome of the 21st century, we actually have to build a new economy with different rules. There's an analogy between the management of the economy and the management of something like Google search or the Facebook newsfeed. You have an optimization function. What people don't realize is that the optimization function for our economy changed in the 1980s. And they go, why was it such, such and such in the, in the 50s? There was this prosperous middle class. And I go, yeah, because we told the system to optimize for something different. After World War II, they were saying, holy cow. We have to actually put everybody back to work, you know. So we had the GI Bill, you know, which was GIs could go to school, they could buy homes, they could start businesses. There was all this investment, and the optimization function for our, our economy for about thirty years was full employment. It wasn't corporate profits, and we had this kind of golden period. The problem was that, like almost every optimization function, it eventually starts to go off the rails. It gets, it gets gamed. You've got this amazing you know, level of inflation, uh, which hit in the 70s. And then there was the fix. And the fix, you know, which was to focus on returning companies to profitability, all this stuff to, to fight inflation, ended up creating you know, a, a different kind of prosperity. You know, maybe it was even okay for some period of time where it routed out some of the inefficiencies of the old system, but it's gone on way too long. And, you know, it's just like, think about, uh, again, this is what, what I feel like my, the role that I've tried to take on in society in some senses is to say, okay, tech platforms are kind of like the fruit fly of economic research. Uh, you know how they do, do, do genetic research on fruit flies because they breed so fast. Well, tech platforms come and go. And then they grow up and they go through a whole economic cycle and you can kind of see it and learn from it. And, and I think that there's a lot to learn from the economic cycles of tech platforms that apply to society as well. And, you know, this idea of having an optimization function that has to be adjusted. You look at how Google, you know, was optimizing and then people figured out how to game the system. They had to do big interventions to change how they did search because people were basically creating these vast content farms that had low quality content designed to fool the algorithms. You know, Facebook is going through all these, this work. And we've now realized in tech that these algorithms need constant updating and you have to throw out stuff that you did before and come up with not just cosmetic changes. 
And I think in a similar way, our economy needs some fundamental changes in what we are optimizing for, not just how do we keep uh, this broken system going. Absolutely. Tim, you've raised so many really interesting threads, as you pointed out, you know, sort of acknowledging the problem is one of the first steps. I always love talking to you. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Really a treat. Really fun. Thank you. That's all we got. Thanks, everybody. Yes, thanks, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Tim O'Reilly, and we will see you back here next week.